All right, uh, let's jump into God's word this morning in Matthew chapter 21. Now, last week we left off in Matthew chapter 17, and we're jumping all the way to 21. So there's four chapters in there. Listen, there's just too much to cover. Uh, We need to get to the resurrection by Easter. That's my deadline. So we're skipping ahead a few chapters. Um, And then in in a couple of weeks, uh, on Palm Sunday, we're actually going to go backwards and talk about um, Matthew chapter 21, the first part of that chapter, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And it's appropriate to do it on that day. But there's so much that happened on that last week of Jesus' life that there are chapters and chapters of material to cover. And so I don't want to skip over all the other stuff that happened in between Palm Sunday and um, the resurrection too. So we're going to cover some of that as well. But we're going to pick it up in, at, in the middle of Matthew chapter 21 this morning. And I'm going to start in verse 28. And this is, we're going to actually cover three parables this morning. And you might be thinking, how are you going to do that? <laughs> we're going to move very quickly through the first two. We're going to spend a little bit more time on the last one. And the reason that I'm doing that, initially I was planning to just preach on the last parable, uh, but all three of them are connected. They all kind of have a similar theme and similar ideas, and it's Jesus once again interacting with the Pharisees. Now, as I've started to study Matthew over the past few months, I had no idea even how much this book dealt with Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders how much of an emphasis that was. And uh, as, as we look into these different parables, Jesus is zeroing in on this issue of a wrong idea of what the kingdom of God is, right? So much of what people believed in Jesus' day was about who he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do and how they thought of him as a leader in the political sense, a king that would come and lead them over the, in, in victory over the, the Roman Empire and, and set them free and reestablish Israel as a great nation and a political force and a military. And Jesus didn't do any of that. In fact, he made it very clear that that was not his purpose and his intention at all. The kingdom that he was establishing was completely separate from what everybody was expecting it to be. And a lot of that tension came up in his interaction with the religious leaders. And so he addresses them very clearly in these next three parables that we're about to look at. And the word parable actually means to cast alongside. Uh, Now, I've shared this before, but um, a parable to cast alongside, basically it means you're taking a physical reality, something that people would understand, and you're placing it alongside a spiritual reality that maybe people wouldn't understand to help them grasp the concept a little bit better. And that's what Jesus is doing with these, with these parables and, and how he taught in that way. And, and there's a form to a parable. In fact, as, as people would tell parables in the past, they would tell the story, right, the, the physical reality, the, the story that would help explain the truth that they're trying to get to, and then they would ask a question and let people answer it. And you'll see that happen 
in these parables. So verse 28, it says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. And now here's Jesus asking the question, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now that was an offensive statement. I want you to understand this. He's talking to the religious leaders right here. And he's saying, there are two sons. You are one of them. And the people that you would consider to be sinners are the other one. And he's telling them, you're the one that says all the right things. But when it comes right down to it, your heart's not right. And there are others who don't know what to say, who don't know the right things um, to do, who don't know how to present themselves a certain way, but their heart is right before me, and they'll enter the kingdom of God before you. How many of you have heard of uh, the son of Sam before, right? He's a serial killer in New York. He's still in prison to this day. His real name is David Berkowitz, um, but to the police at that time we were trying to catch him, he was known as the son of Sam. It just awful, awful story. Um, it, you know, a lot, I think eight different women that were, were killed by this, by this serial killer. Well, as he was in prison, he's been in prison for many years now, one of his fellow inmates handed him a Bible. And he began to open up that Bible and he began to read the word of God. And he came to the understanding of who Christ was and God transformed his life. He gave his heart to Christ in prison, surrendered his life to Christ and uh, at one point, he had an appearance before a judge, and he said, I don't deserve to, to be set free. I have no desire to be set free from prison. I deserve to be right here. And in fact, I believe that God has placed me here, and now I have a ministry as a result of, of um, being in this prison and, and having an opportunity to share God's love to other inmates. Now, that is an incredible story. And you think about the fact that somebody who was a serial killer is ultimately headed for heaven when people who do many honorable things, who are kind, who are respectable in their community, who know all the right things to say, who maybe even go to church every single Sunday, but don't have a relationship with Christ. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here, that it's, it's not about what you can do to earn Christ's righteousness. It's about whether your heart is right before him. Here's, here's another parable. I'm going to skip down to verse 33. It says, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. 
And he sent another servant more than, or, and he sent other servants, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, here's the question again, what will he do to these servants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They're condemning themselves with their own words here. Right? I think of like the story, you remember um, David and Nathan when, when David sinned against God and, and he had an affair with Bathsheba uh, and then ultimately um, put her husband in a position where he was killed in battle and Nathan comes to David and he tells him a parable about this guy who took this sheep from this poor man who had nothing, this rich man, and, and took the one thing that this other man had and David said, hey, let me know who this is. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to, like, he deserves to die for this sin. And Nathan goes, uh, David, you might want to rethink that idea. You're the guy. <laughs> David's like, hi, you're right. Right? That's, that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's eventually saying, this is a picture of who you are. In fact, he's referencing a passage of scripture that these people would be familiar with. In Isaiah chapter 5, back in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah um, said this in chapter 5. It says, verse 1, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines, and he built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what you will do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up, for, also, for I will also command the clouds that, the rain, that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this was a picture of what the nation of Judah um, would experience, the judgment that they would face as a result of their sinful behavior, that God was going to take them and send them into captivity because of their sinfulness. And, and so they were familiar with this picture, and when Jesus was, was repainting this, they would have automatically referenced back to this passage that, that many of them had probably memorized. Now let's go back to Matthew, right? Jesus says that there's a math, master of the house. That's God, right? And he plants a vineyard. 
That vineyard is Israel, and it says he puts a fence around it. I believe that's a reference to the law of Moses. And then there's a wine press, and, and I, would, I would say, based on context, that would maybe be the temple or, or the, the work of, of um, the uh, temple and the priests. And, and then there's also a tower, a watchtower, and that would be the leadership of that of that temple as well, and that work of the temple. And then the tenets would be the people and the leadership of Israel, specifically the religious leaders that Jesus was referencing. Now in the story, the master sends the servants first to go and try to address the people in the vineyard. And the first servant that he sends out those people are the prophets, right? He's referencing how God sent prophets to go and tell the truth to the people of Israel, and they didn't respond to that. In fact, they rejected them. They, they treated them cruelly. Um, and so he would send more prophets, and this happened several times. And so eventually, we read that he, the master of the vineyard sends his own son, thinking, surely They'll respect him. Well, that's exactly what God did. He sent his son, Jesus, to God's people. And he's painting them this picture. And what did they do to his son? This is before Jesus' death. So this is a prophetic word. Jesus is saying, I know what you're going to do. Right? And just like you mistreated the prophets who were sent to you beforehand, now the master's son is going to be betrayed and killed by you as well. So Jesus is using Isaiah's parable to say, this is what what is going on here. And then he goes on to say in verse 42, it says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That was from Psalm 118. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when anyone falls, or when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, uh, this passage had significance throughout scripture as well. In fact, if you go on to read in the book of Acts, Peter and John come to this lame man, this crippled beggar who's asking for alms. He's asking for money. He's begging at the gate and and Peter says to him, listen, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Says the guy, got up started dancing and celebrating and praising God. And the religious leaders who were there asked Peter, by whose authority do you think that you have the right to tell this man to get up and walk? And, and Peter says, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> you know, he's the one who is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. It's by his name that we say, get up and walk. It's not us. It's not our authority. It's his authority. 
Right? He quoted that passage to them. In fact, some of them were probably present when Jesus said this the first time. I'd like to think that at least, right? They heard that before. They're like, I've heard this one before. <laughs> so Jesus paints these two pictures. Both of them are incredibly offensive to the religious leaders. But he's not done yet. He's going to go one step further. Matthew chapter 22, let's, let's keep reading on to the next parable. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, um, the way that this would have worked if there was a royal wedding, they would have sent out the invitations in advance, and they would have done so by person, not by postage, right? So people would have gone around and said, hey, the king's son is getting married. You're invited to the wedding, um, and we will come and let you know when it's coming, but we want to give you a chance to prepare um, and to, to be a part of this um, ceremony. Well, apparently... The king sent them out the second time and, and invited them to the celebration, and they rejected the invitation. Now, can I tell you something? When the king invites you to the wedding, you don't just say, I just don't really feel like it. Right? This is not an optional invitation. This is not something that's like, hey, listen, if you don't have anything else going on, you can show up. I mean, imagine for a second, like, we live in the United States but if, if we lived in England and you were invited to the royal wedding, right? And, and like when, think when Harry and Meghan got, in, got married and, and you were invited to that wedding and you're like, you know, I just, I got a lot going on today. I, I, there's, I got to go to Walmart, <laughs> you know, I mean, grocery shopping. Listen, there's a lot going on. I'm going to pass going to the, to the royal wedding. I mean, this was an incredible insult for them not to show up. Now, here's what's incredible. At that moment, the king would have been well within his rights to say, listen, you're done. Off with your heads. But what does verse 4 say? Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen. And my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding and feast. He's saying, listen, God has been doing this throughout history. He's given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to accept him. And you've rejected him time and time and time again. Throughout history, it's a constant cycle of rejection of the goodness of God. And he's invited them over and over and over again. And he's like, by the way, guys, this is going to be a good party too. Like, it's not like, like you have to come and you're going to be miserable. Like, I'm making an incredible dinner for you. Like, it's going to be fun. You know, our God is a God of second chances. How many of you are grateful for that? Right? Like, how many of us have been knuckleheads in the past and, and rejected God's love and his grace and God has forgiven us and opened that door for us over and over again, many times over? But verse 5 says, They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. This is what most of the world does, right? They hear the message of the goodness of God. 
and yet they just choose to ignore it. They choose to place their faith in things that will never provide them anything lasting for eternity. They choose things that will bring them temporary satisfaction, whether it's wealth, whether it's fame, whether it's um, temporary pleasure, whatever it might be. All of those things will maybe leave you satisfied in the moment, but ultimately leave you wanting for more. And God's invitation is for something so much greater than that. And then there's a second group of people in verse 6. It says, Well, the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. You know, some people will ignore the gospel. Others will oppose it. That's, that's the reality of the world that we live in. It was a promise from Jesus himself. That there's going to be opposition to what you do. And if you choose to follow Christ and you choose to serve him and, and, and work in his kingdom and, and live your life for him, there are going to be people that are going to actively oppose what you're doing. That there are enemies to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, um, that sounds harsh, right? Like, whoa, like that's a reaction right there. Like you could have just, you know, let them miss out on the party. Um, in, in reality, what Jesus is doing here, he's actually telling them what's going to happen to them. Like this is, this is a prophetic statement. In fact, we're going to talk about it a little bit more next week. But ultimately, Jesus is predicting the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, in 63 AD, just 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, the city was destroyed. The temple was torn brick by brick down to the ground. The, the city of Jerusalem was burned and, and, and great destruction happened. And Jesus is telling them, this is what's coming because you've rejected me. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all that they found, both good and bad. Isn't that an incredible statement? It doesn't matter what your past was. It doesn't matter what you've done. You're, the invitation that God gives to us it's for both good and bad. Right? So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now we begin to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Right? This first invitation was to the Jews, and they rejected him over and over and over and over again. There's a series of rejections in the Old Testament, and then they were given a second chance through Jesus, he appeared to the Jews. He was born in Israel. He lived his life in, in this community. He ministered in the city of Jerusalem. And most ignored him. And others wanted him dead. In fact, the religious leaders would ultimately have him killed. So the king says, okay, enough of them. Has them killed and their city destroyed. Then he says, go and invite anyone you can find. 
Now, if you have an ego about your pedigree in the kingdom of God, I'm about to ruin that for you this morning. <laughs> it says, when Jesus, when Jesus said to go out in the streets and find anyone who will come, no matter how gross they are, that's you and me. Right? No matter how messed up they are, no matter what their background is, no matter what their heritage is, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. They're willing to come, they're invited. Verse 11 says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. This is where the story take, takes a little interesting twist. And he said to him, Friend... How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That sounds pretty harsh too, right? Like the guy didn't have a nice enough you know, suit, so he got kicked out of the wedding? thrown into the darkness. Now, I think probably what we're missing from our understanding of this passage is what's implied by Jesus here. You see, the king went out onto the street and invited all these people who had no notice that they were invited to the party. So in all likelihood, if they were to come and be a part of this wedding with no notice, then the king would have provided for them the proper attire to wear to the wedding. But apparently, one of the guests who had been invited decided to come, but that he didn't want to wear the thing that the king provided for him to wear, that he didn't want to dress appropriately for the wedding. Now, what, Jesus, what I believe Jesus is talking about here is that God provides for us a garment of his righteousness that's for us to wear. And when we decide to show up to the wedding wearing our own righteousness and rejecting what he's offered for us. When we try to figure it out ourselves and, and, and earn our way into the kingdom of God and say, no, thanks God, but I've got this on my own, that's ultimately an insult to what he's done for us. He's given us everything that we need for godliness. He's given us a robe of righteousness. It's not about what you can do. It's not about your ability to earn his favor. It's not about your ability to say or do the right thing. You don't have to follow a form or, or go through a procedure or, or do anything um, to make you right before God. You just have to receive his righteousness. And if you don't have that, listen, you can be at the party, but you're getting kicked out. Right, you can go to church every single Sunday. You can listen to Christian radio. You can have every song on KTIS memorized. It's not that hard. There's only like six of them. <laughs> right? But if what is inside of you isn't the righteousness of God, if you haven't by faith received his grace, then you're living a lie. Then you're showing up to a party that you, weren't, you aren't supposed to be a part of. It's only by his grace and his goodness that we are saved. Now, here's, here's the danger to us. 
There's a lot of people that come to church that know how to act a certain way, that know how to play the game. But when it comes right down to it, that's exactly what they're doing. They're playing a game. And it's a dangerous one at that. That last line in the passage we just read, it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. I want to end with this thought today. Today is Selection Sunday. Does anybody know what that is? A few of you are college basketball fans, right? Uh, Today, what's going to happen is the selection committee for the NCAA is going to get together in a room. I think they still meet in a room maybe with COVID. Now they meet on Zoom or something. I don't even know. But they get together and they evaluate every team in NCAA basketball, and they look at their season and the competition that they played, and there's, a, there's two different ways to get in. You can get an automatic bid by winning your conference tournament, and no matter what happened, you're in in that instance, or you can be selected by this committee um, based on um, your achievements that season, who you've beaten, how difficult of a schedule you've played, um, all of these different things factor in, and they, they decide who goes to this tournament of 64 teams, or I don't, 68, I don't know how it is now. Um, but um, there are automatic bids, there are obvious selections, right? Like if you're in the top 25, you're, you're pretty much in, and then there's something called a bubble team. Now, if you are a bubble team, that means you're on the bubble of getting in or getting out. You're right on that outside edge. And maybe you're going to get in, maybe you're not. Now, some of these teams um, are going to be really disappointed at the end of this day, and some are going to be really excited. Now, can I tell you, aren't you glad that's not how the kingdom of God works? Right? Like, aren't you glad that, that God isn't up there, like, going through a checklist? Oh, man, uh, you know what? Like... Andrew, he's in for sure. I mean, he's checking off enough boxes. But then, then we got Pamela. She's on the bubble. Like, the behavior in some of these areas, uh, you know, I don't know. Well, listen, we're either going to have to pick Pamela or Howard. Like, one, one of them is in, one of them is out. Right? And if it's based on our righteousness, frankly, what it comes down to, none of us have earned enough. I'm so grateful that it has nothing to do with my righteousness, with my ability to figure it out on my own. It's all about what Jesus did on the cross for me. I'm so grateful for his work. I'm so grateful that he paid the price. Now, you might read that last line, many are called, but few are chosen. You might think, well, that verse settles it. God chooses who's going to be a part of his kingdom and who isn't. Uh, but I, I want to make the case this morning that this entire passage that everything that we read is about our ability to choose. It's about our our will. It's about um, everyone being invited to the party, but some rejecting and others accepting. I believe what Jesus is saying is to those who responded that they become the elect, the chosen, those who are invited to be a part of God's team. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign and that he isn't in control and that he doesn't have authority. It just, just means that he created us and, and gave us the ability to choose to receive his grace or to reject it. 
And I think um, the explanation is found, Paul gives us this explanation in, in Romans chapter 8. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's not a matter of God choosing some people to be saved and some people to go to hell. It's the fact that he knew before you were born what choice you would make. And because of that, now he's predestined you on a journey to become more like Jesus, right? The predestination is not your, your destination as far as heaven or hell. You're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's that process of sanctification, of maturity, of growth in Christ. He's placed a plan in your life. He's put circumstances in your life that will help you grow to be more like him. And he's not wasting the difficult circumstances, but he's causing those bad things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So what do we do with all of this, right? Because most of this was, was spoken to these religious leaders, and, and I would say the vast majority of us in this room are probably not Jewish, right? So um, we're not placing our faith in, in uh, that religion or anything like that. In fact, most of us are the, the leftovers that Jesus was talking about. So how do we take something and apply this to our life this morning? Well, I think there are a few things that, that we can learn from these different parables, from the first parable, obedience is more important than lip service, right? So knowing how to say the right things is less important than being obedient with your life and choosing to follow Christ and honoring him with the way that you live. And I think sometimes we get wrapped up in the idea of knowing what to say rather than just being faithful with what God has given to us. The vineyard that he's talking about the, the vines that, that God desired were the ones that produced good fruit. Well, we know what good fruit looks like because Paul told us in Galatians what it is. He said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if those things are reflected in your life, then you're producing good fruit. And if they're not, then maybe you need to listen to the Spirit a little bit more, right? Second thing is, we need to say yes to his invitation, right? There are a lot of things that compete for your time. There are a lot of things that can pull your attention in different directions. And listen, when it comes right down to it, when you're invited to the party, are you going to say, I'm going to drop everything? Because in this moment, the most important thing is what God has for me. Maybe some of you are in this room and, and you're in that place right now and you're, you're asking yourself the question, you know, what is important in my life? What, what thing really matters to me? Am I, am I choosing um, the, the busyness of life, my work, my career, my, my family even, my, my entertainment, my hobbies, whatever it might be that's distracting us 
from that relationship with God? Are we willing to lay those things down and say, I'm willing to, I want to pursue the most important thing. I want to say yes to his invitation. Third thing is to make sure you're wearing the right clothes, that you're wearing the garment of Christ's righteousness, that it's not about your effort or your works, but that your faith is holy in his grace and in his faithfulness and in his forgiveness and his work on the cross. And if it isn't, then you're placing your faith in something that's broken. Number four, invite others to the party. Listen, you're not just a guest at the wedding, but now that you are part of the family of God, you're one of the servants too. So our call is not just to come to the party, but to go out into the world and invite others as well. I mean... What good is a party for a bunch of people if we have a bunch of empty tables? Like, let's, let's get them in here. Let's show them the goodness of God. It's, it's not that we're, we're like, I'm trying to trick them or deceive them to coming to something that's not awesome. Like, this is, this is the greatest gift that's ever been given, what God has done for us. And we should be eager to share it with the world around us. We can be afraid of rejection we can allow that to prevent us from sharing God's love with others. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, what matters more? Is that rejection going to hurt as much as seeing a friend or a relative who rejected Christ and now has to spend eternity in hell because we were too scared of what they might think to share it with them? Let's invite them to the party. Right? Let's show them the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you this morning that you reached out to us. Lord, that you called out to us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our disappointment. You invited us into your family, into this celebration of what you've done into your kingdom. What an honor and what a privilege. But I thank you that you found us. Lord, that you brought us in without any expectation of what we could do for our, ourselves. But that your son did it all on the cross. So we rejoice in that truth today. We celebrate that. We thank you for that gift. Lord, help us to be worthy of the calling, of the invitation. And Lord, remind us of those who are far from you so that we can share that love with them as well. Lord, we thank you for this day for a chance to worship and celebrate and remember what you've done for us. We love you, Jesus, and we give you praise. In your name, amen.